0: What you might say is that from a strictly intellectual, scientific, philosophical perspective, the only way to account for all this evidence is either to accept life after death or to accept that psi is a real phenomenon.
1: Hello and welcome back to Mind Matters. Today we're going to be revisiting a theme that we've covered on one or maybe two shows now it's the subject of the afterlife and what evidence exists to support the idea that there is a non-physical realm or level of reality that uh, we go to after our physical bodies expire Uh, what the implications are for such a level of existence Uh, in contrast to all of the types of um, scientific materialist uh, underpinnings of of reality that we're constantly being um, indoctrinated with. And there seems to be no shortage of ideas and directions that we can go in discussing the subject because when... When we discuss the afterlife, uh, the implications of a uh, of a different level of reality uh, open up all sorts of other questions. There is seemingly no uh, limit to what's implied in the suggestion that this isn't everything there is. Uh, so we'll be getting into some of the implications of uh, the best evidence if such a word can be used of uh, the afterlife Uh, one of the things that we recently drew upon to um, well there's a lot of literature that continues to be uh, put out on the subject and so we recently got to see a documentary on Netflix uh, called Surviving Death, uh, which was divided in six parts, and each of them kind of coming at the subject from a, a different angle. Um, it's, uh, it's not a great, but it's a decent introduction to the subject, um, including parapsychology, that I think many people will... Uh, be very new to Um, and some of it demands skepticism Uh, some of it because of its uh, emotional reality uh, invites more questioning and more uh, thought on the subject so we'll be getting into that a little bit as well I'll kind of start in a roundabout way by just saying that uh, having having read some of the more esoteric uh, literature on the subject, uh, I was kind of sad to see that the series didn't cover any of that. the tomes of, of writings uh, that were put out in the heyday of spiritualism in the uh, in the late, 19th century and early 20th century that um, That was transcribed by authors who were uh, given to automatic writing and uh, Who who had were basically in communication with? uh, beings of the afterlife who were attempting to convey what the reality is like and and what purpose it serves and and how lives continue there and what the purpose of of that level of reality is in the vast scheme of things so uh one of the most compelling parts of um this whole story wasn't included uh in the in the show um which is okay
0: and debatable and what well i don't think it's the most like personally i don't think that those are the most compelling i think they're they're the most interesting and the most, like, reading a science fiction or fantasy novel, but I wouldn't call them the most compelling. Well, in the sense of, like, in the sense of evidence. So this series was based on and inspired by Leslie Kane's book, which we've got here, Surviving Death. She published this one, let me see what the year was, 20, 2017. So it's four years old. And it, she's a journalist. She's a, she's a good journalist. And so, like, the 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 main like thrust of the book is to look at what she considers the best uh like the best scientific evidence the best evidence that can be brought to bear for like a a modern mind similar to well she interviews kind of all the leading researchers in these various aspects like you mentioned that the the show has six episodes like devoted to kind of like five themes five threads of evidence like there's a uh, mediumship, reincarnation, near-death experiences, um, like, uh, after, or what do they call them? Like, uh, signs from the dead, so, and like, visual, there's a word for, for like a vision of the deathbed, deathbed vision, um, deathbed apparition, apparition is the word. So when, which there are kind of two types, I can't remember the specific terminology for each of them, but one is when a loved one or someone close to you dies elsewhere, and that and and you have like a, a vision at night, or you hear their voice, or you have a, a vivid dream, or something happens. You might you might see see them when they're not actually there, and then a day, a week, or a month later, depending on the time period and depending on how fast information would travel, you get news that that's when they died, and they de- they might have died in a specific manner that you saw them. Like um, someone might have a uh, a vision of that person like drenched in water, and then you find out that they've been drowned, you know, halfway across the world, something like that, or an actual deathbed vision of a person who's dying. And this seems to be a recurring theme among people who are dying, who, in the in the last moments, in the last days, weeks, sometimes even longer than that, have visions of their loved ones who have previously died, mm-hmm. and like waking visions, and the, and these people are are totally lucid, and um, well well, can be totally lucid, like not necessarily um, with dementia or anything like that, just as lucid and, and uh, coherent as they are ordinarily, but they'll be seeing things that aren't there for other people. So Leslie Kane interviews a lot of the people involved in each of these separate fields, including some philosophers, some, um, some doctors, and, and uh, like medical doctors, philosophers, medical doctors, um, psychologists... And um, people of those sorts. She she interviews them all. So she one of the people that shows up in the book is Stephen Browdy, who we interviewed on SOT like years ago. Man, he's written several books. He's a philosopher. Like one of them is Immortal Remains: The Evidence for Life After Death. And so he kind of takes a real um, like analytic approach to to all the evidence, and and he comes to like his kind of philosophical conclusion that you can't say one way or the other with certitude like a lot of philosophers and people looking into this will will say oh it looks like the evidence tends in one direction like it tends to definitely that the evidence does seem to support the the evidence of the afterlife but given all of this other stuff that we know about the capacity of the human mind we can't say definitively that it is so 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 we're left in this position of still not like just with our Within the categories of how you know we in our time think about things and judge mm-hmm. evidence, we can't say for certain that it's one thing and not the other. So I can understand, I, I, I can understand whatever position someone might take on the actual evidence, whether it's from a, um, a, a like a dogmatic traditional perspective where there's a very set belief in what the afterlife is or is not and what happens, and and then maybe the agnostic approach, which is which is leaving open either possibilities so and for for that you'd have to be you'd have to kind of reject the at least the the mainstream materialistic scientific worldview um, to be open to the possibility of something over and above that, or that could somehow work maybe somehow work with that, but but be but might include that, but with something else. Uh, on top of it, over and above it, and then the the I guess the the, the other extreme would be to to simply um, like maybe reject the the traditional notions of the afterlife and to go firmly in the okay yes it exists and and this is what it's like but it doesn't have anything to do anything or it doesn't resemble to any great degree you know the 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 common options on the like religious market which is kind of like a horseshoe theory where it, that kind of is uh pretty close to the to the religious perspective. So just maybe before we get into the stuff that's in the book, I wanted to comment on some of the the some of those like perspectives that that you're talking about from like the 1800s and the very in-depth um very in-depth presentations of the afterlife. And this actually will get into something that I was planning on talking about because two of the episodes out of the six, so while each type of evidence is usually devoted to, has one episode devoted to it, mediumship has two devoted to it. Just because I guess it's a, there's so many mediums and so many different types of mediumship as they show in the, in the show. And when you look at mediumship, I think mediumship for the most part is actually the, the weakest form of evidence. That actually that would actually kind of convince a convince a hard nosed you know skeptic out there. Like a, a lot of the, one of the charming things about the show is that they interview a lot of people who have had experiences, right? And um, some of the I can't remember if it's all in all of the types of evidence, but usually there's there's a couple involved and there's a death in the family and then something will happen and the wife. Will be the motivating force and saying, "Look what's going on," or "Look what happened. This is really weird." It's the husband that usually is like, "Oh, you know, no, we can't get into that. That's 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 crazy stuff." And luckily, for uh, for the show and for for the wives in these situations, the husbands kind of come around because you can see that it's not something that you can just dismiss out of hand or just write off completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can you can kind of see where they're coming from and where they're starting where they're starting from. But when you when you see the um, the stuff produced by mediums, this is where I think Browdy's approach is a kind of um, even if I don't even if I don't necessarily like you know like I have a kind of personality aversion sometimes to might be kind of contradictory because I tend to be the same way to the kind of hard nosed intellectual like. Oh it can't be this this can't be proved you know it's kind of it's kind of annoying, but I think that can be helpful in certain situations, and maybe I'll give the example when we did our interview with Mary Balog, I brought up um, a case and I couldn't remember the woman's name of a a medium if you could call her that from the early nineteen hundreds I think named Pearl Curran who with an acquaintance of hers, sat down at the, at a Ouija board, and they made contact with this woman named Patience Worth. And so the idea was that, that it, they eventually narrowed it down that Pearl Pearl was the one, the the kind of, um, the, the, the channel, the medium, the woman she was with. I think her name was Elizabeth Hutchings or something like that. She wasn't necessary, so they could actually contact Patience Worth when this other woman wasn't there. And so Pearl was the, the woman that you could say channeled this this personality for the next 25 years. And Patience gave like a backstory of who she was and a, a story of, of the life that she'd lived and she, she was a, a writer. So she actually wrote poems, novels, um, aphorisms, all, ki- all kinds of like literary works that she produced through uh, allegedly through Pearl Curran, on a Ouija board, very rapidly and remarkably, without any errors. So, as I kind of alluded to, or you know described not too completely in that interview with Mary Balog that we did, she could sit down and start writing a novel, mm-hmm. as patience worth, and then cut off for a week or a month, come back. Pick up, yeah. continue pretty much Uh mid-sentence, and then once the novel was complete, all that had to be done was the the minor editing job of separating the words, you know, maybe adding punctuation. Mm -hmm. But there were no major revisions done, and she wrote tons of novels this way, and some of them were best-selling at the time, Mm -hmm. but they weren't really remembered because they were kind of written off as a, a gimmick, because it was this patient's worth who doesn't exist, you know, writing through this medium at a Ouija board. So people didn't really catch on it. Like she wasn't a real novelist. So the, the question was, well, was Patience Worth a real person? And Browdy devotes like a whole chapter to the case and goes into it in depth. And what they, what he basically comes to the, he comes to the conclusion that there's no evidence that this Patience Worth ever existed or was ever a real person. And the best explanation that seems to be the case for, for this particular case, was that Patience Worth was essentially a creation of Pearl Curran's subconscious. Mm-hmm. It was Pearl who had the creative ability; she had the innate talent, but that was, um, but she had no outlet for it in her life. She she couldn't be a writer, and, and so. The the manifestation of patience worth was a weight of her for her to express her creativity, which was remarkable because there, there doesn't seem to have been a novelist um, before or since who had the this this creative capacity to just open up the channel like o- open up the the floodgates and just let a novel come out perfect in its first draft mm-hmm. that doesn't need any revision. And I'll get into some other remarkable things she did later. But...
1: Did you say that was all through a Ouija board?
0: All through a Ouija board. And well, maybe I'll, I'll do that right now because um, just to give an idea of... Well, so like I say, I'm, I don't see this as evidence for the afterlife. But what I do see it uh, see it as is um, evidence that the the human mind is probably infinitely more remarkable than most people have an idea of, mm-hmm. because even if you, if you look at some of the things that she was able to do, they set up some, there was a, a guy that worked with her and did some kind of challenges with her tests just to just, just to see what she could do. Um, I can't, I don't know, the, I can't remember, the oh, W.F. Prince was this guy's name. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember who he was, but he set up a bunch of interesting challenges for Pearl or for patients. One of which was, okay, this is in the section called Stunts of Composition. So he had her, he had to do this, okay, maybe I'll just read it. For example, on May 6th, 1920, Prince asked Patience to dictate a poem to John Curran, I believe that's Pearl's Pearl's husband, while Pearl simultaneously wrote a letter to a friend. So she's sitting with one hand... Composing a letter to a friend, mm-hmm. and with the other hand, she's moving the the Ouija board to, to different letters. Before beginning, patience said, "I shall see. I shall set a wee wit of a singing, while she sets the bannock." Um, patience often spoke in this kind of like dialect that's that's uh, very poetic and hard to understand for a 21st century person, <laughs> but. So then she wrote, I'll just read a, a sample of, of the poem and the letter she wrote. So the poem that, she, that, that Patience was composing on the Ouija board, was called Will-o'-the-Wisp. O you marshlight, flashing across the marshes, beckoning. Is thy light that I see a beacon to tomorrow? Give me a sign, O, ye ba- o you banshee, give me a sign. Make tomorrow's question marked against the sky, fitfully as thy flash, O you marshlight flashing. Then shall I be more accustomed to the questioning that I live. Meanwhile, she's writing, Dear Dotsy, I am writing you while I write a poem. It's a new trick. Do you like it? See here, honey, my hands are full. I don't like it, honey. It's like baking bread and stirring stirring soup. I am sick of the job. I wish you were here and that we could go over this together. This is a mess of a letter, honeybug. I'm nuts. This is some chase. Slinging, uh, Slinging slang and purring poetry. Jack is doing his best in this marathon. This is a, this is fine business, and I'm up against it. Finis, honey, and I'm and I call it going home, Pearl. So she composes this letter while she's writing a, a, a poem at the same time, time with different hands. Okay. On another occasion, he got her to compose a dialogue between um, a dialogue in her in her characteristic archaic dialect between a lout and a wench at a fair. And then interspersed between lines of this dialogue, she was to compose a poem on the folly of atheism. So that's exactly what she did. And I mean, I'll read a little bit of it, but again, um, the dialect is, is kind of hard to understand. But, and I'll leave out the the ellipsed letters so that they make words that can be understood. So, have you seen the Mummers setting up a puppet show Athin the fielding, nigh, interspersed with, who doubts his god is but a lout who piths his wisdom with egotry ha- hath lost his mark, ay, I, I see'd him fetchin' past and bide of a rib, bide of a ribbon and a new latchet and a shoonbuchlin and tasselled thongs, to doubt is but to cast thee as a stone unto the very heart of God, ay, and I fetched me a whistle, and heard the doings of the village that mark the smithy, hade a new wench and she be left, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She composed a poem um, immediately after being told to, to, with each line starting at on the new letter of the alphabet. So, a task is before me. Can I, O God, perform it? Dole me patience, enough that I be sustained, for I am indeed in need of strength, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she's doing all this immediately at full speed, mm-hmm. you know, while st- sitting at a Ouija board. And so that's in addition to the novels that just flowed, out of her seemingly from nowhere, and she herself um, didn't take any kind of personal credit for it. Kind of like, you know, Mary Bellog, for many novelists, it just comes to them. Well, for her, it was literally, you know, like watching watching the novel be composed on a Ouija board.
2: Right. Okay, so this might be a strange thought, but um, when we were... uh, Oh, so I was reading one of... The, the Westcott series books and one of the characters can play piano now he's he had never uh, taken any formal lessons so he he just naturally had this ability to sit down and play mm-hmm. so I was thinking about it and uh, you know there's there's virtuosos of that of that sort who mm-hmm. uh, who do exist and are real mm-hmm. Mozart was one of them who just kind of like picked up the piano at a very very young age and just you know took to it like water mm-hmm. so it made me think that there is some kind of information in an information field, right? Mm -hmm. And what all we do when we do things is we tap into it Mm -hmm. and there's multiple ways of tapping into it. Um, for most of us, the only way for us to be able to access the information in order to play music is by having the, the hardwired code into our neurology, uh, into the, you know, physical motor units in order for that to come through. Mm Mm-hmm. However, perhaps it's possible to have access to that without all of the actual uh, like motor neuron groundwork. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about it uh, in terms of what you were talking about. She's able to tap into that part of the information field without ever av- having actually taken any like writing courses did she ever take any writing courses or anything like that
0: uh, i can't remember the specifics but i'm pretty sure she she didn't but she had some kind of passing famili- familiarity with like chaucer but um but she hadn't devoted herself to like a serious study mm-hmm. or or have experience in writing it kind of just came out of nowhere
2: yeah so that was that that's pretty much what i was uh <laughs> had had in my mind as to how this could possibly work now again like what does this mean and how does this actually work and what does what does that uh then open the doors to in terms of possibilities mm-hmm. i don't know but i think that's pretty cool mm-hmm. um i mean there was the the stories of gurdjieff being able to watch somebody do something for a couple minutes and he do it himself yeah and i'm i'm wondering if that was what he was doing mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: yeah so there there is a, a question about the nature of human genius like what it is and no one really knows what it is and there are, there are some some ideas about what some of those things might be like with the virtuoso um musicians one idea is that they are reincarnated so but then the question is like Browdy raises okay well let's assume that's the case well then how did the how did the the previous version get that get 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 that talent did they develop it in their life is it possible to develop it in life or or maybe for some people it just does come out of nowhere so but then you could put both of them together maybe it comes out of nowhere and maybe that genius will then reincarnate in another genius and you'd have two two geniuses so if you're open to the possibilities of both then then maybe there are maybe there is more than one explanation for it Maybe it is, you know, It maybe it is just like everything in human nature, part of that bell curve where some people are at that, that tiny end of the bell curve where they just they have a lot more of something than everyone else does. And maybe talent is distributed like that. Maybe it doesn't have to have anything to do with reincarnation, but maybe it sometimes does because one of the, like what I find to be some of the most compelling evidence f- for and uh, like the the continuation of life you know after death would be the reincarnation cases for some reason those just kind of Mm -hmm. strike me as the most compelling and they're they have two really good cases in this show which are discussed in the book too um so i'd recommend either reading the book or or watching the show to get familiar with them because they're they're really compelling and interesting but one of the things about kids who remember past lives which is a phenomenon first studied him in depth by Ian Stevenson a medical doctor and psychiatrist i can't remember if he was a psychiatrist or not but he collected just tons of cases from all over all over the world but mostly starting out in south and southeast asia and these would be kids who who from a very young age like sometimes like between 3 and 5 years old sometimes before that will say things and tell their parents about oh, well, my previous mummy did this, or my old mummy did this, or you're not my mummy, this is my mummy, and my name isn't John, it's, like, George. And then they'd give details, and in a lot of cases in in um, in Asia, what they do, they, they might remember, oh, I was from this village, and so they'd bring the kid to that village, and then the kid would point out their previous parents, or that was my brother, or that's the guy that killed me, <laughs> you know? So, <clears throat> So there's a lot of interesting cases like that in Ian Stevenson's work and also Jim Tucker, who um, they interview for this show and who's interviewed for Leslie Kane's book. So some of these kids show a kind of unexpected, unexplainable preternatural knowledge of something that they're that they're obsessed with. So there's this, um, one of the cases, James um, James, I'll just call him James, was a kid from a very young age. He was obsessed with um, planes and he'd draw pictures of plane crashes and he said, oh, this is me. You know, I died in a plane crash and he'd have nightmares and is, you know, for months or years, I can't remember. And his parents like collected all this detail and his dad was on it. You know, he was collecting every little little thing he said and then he was looking it up and finding things out. And, And this kid would go to a, he he would tell his parents things about planes, that he couldn't have known, he couldn't have found anywhere, and that they had no idea about. And he'd he he'd name the planes. Oh, that's this kind of plane. That's this kind of plane. That's this kind of plane. And he wasn't on the internet. And this was this was in like the early 2000s, I think, late 90s. He didn't have access to this kind of stuff. It was just stuff that he knew somehow. Mm-hmm. So there does seem to be the possibility again, like for some of these. Skills, even if, even in this case, if it's just um, if it's just facts to to carry over that kind of information. Now, I don't know if they were to sit him in like a flight simulator. I it would be interesting. It, it would have been interesting at the time to see if this kid remembered the actual like the motor neurons, the mm-hmm. the actual movements that uh, that accompany flying a plane. But I, but long story short, for just to to cover this case, they found. Eventually, through a cu- just a couple things that he happened to say, they managed to find the the aircraft carrier and the like the squadron or or whatever that he was part of, that and and the guy who died in like the battle of Iwo Jima that matched everything he said. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like pretty remarkable. Again, Browdy would say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's actual right. like, like life after death, but that's because Browdy is open to. Um, the idea of psi. So what, what you might say is that from a strictly intellectual, scientific, philosophical perspective, the only way to account for all this evidence is either to accept life after death or to accept that psi is a real phenomenon. If you don't have either of those, then you can't explain it. So either way, the materialistic, the scientific materialist perspective can't account for this kind of evidence. It might be able to account for Like Pearl Curran, that would, but that would be to go there. You'd have to still accept that the subconscious mind is far more mysterious and powerful than most people give it credit for, Mm -hmm. which in itself is a is a you know pretty remarkable um, position to take or just thing to consider and to to look at. But to get back to the like the, the channeled stuff, the, the really interesting channel stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, before that, one other case to show, kind of like Pearl Curran, there's a famous experiment, I think it's called the Felix Experiment, where a group of people who are familiar with the literature decided to get together and create a personality. I, th- I can't remember if it was at a, a Ouija board or if it was using like uh, table tapping or... But it was somehow they 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 deliberately set they delib- deliberately created a personality that they that they created a a background for and a story for, and then that personality manifested seemingly autonomously among them, and they engaged in dialogue with it, and this was the 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 kind of non psi explanation for this, even if there may be an element of psi involved that I think Browdy, um, I can't remember for sure, but I think Browdy goes in this direction, is that it's essentially like creating a dissociated personality, a multiple personality, but that uh, that isn't a fragment motivated by any kind of mental illness. That it is utilizing the dissociative capacity of the mind to create something. Because you can create all the personalities you want in your mind um consciously because that's what that's what novelists do all the time they're creating personalities when it gets into the realm of psychopathology is when there's um there's actually some like pathological dissociation going on and that that creates these autonomous personalities that you know that might switch or or take over for psychological reasons but that capacity within the mind still exists to to Close shape. off and shape, you know, an, a, a personality within the the master personality that seemingly has its own autonomy, its own its own history, and it can create a history, and it can create like a, a an entire story for for its existence, and and then manifest it and tell it to you, and we, w- without any of your conscious awareness, mm-hmm. it's coming from your own mind, kind of like novelists when they write a story, a, a character manifests itself and speaks in its own voice and has its own story, yeah. but with with, um, with either dissociative identity or multiple personality, or with um, these more psi-related things, it seems to be an external, actual personality. It seems to be an actual person. It's like a, a novelist is aware to some degree that, well, this is debatable too, aware that, well, it's just a character it's a it's a it's a fiction but it's it's a a remarkable fiction it has life of its own maybe it actually does exist you know and that's another another source for for great literature is like well what if these were you know great sci-fi or fantasy well what if these characters actually exist in some like alternate universe and we're just observing them
2: but or tapping into them mm -hmm. that uh kind of gets it it puts the finger on on something that i was thinking about as you were talking about uh um this guy's explanation for uh, psi as being a possible explanation for some of the the reincarnation stuff and i was wondering like okay maybe it's maybe that's possible but then you start to get into a realm where you're you're like undermining the position or possibility of consciousness unless you're assuming that psi can create consciousness or consciousness is psi of some sort
0: well for reincarnation it would be I can't remember if this is Browdy's position, but a similar position would be that the the child, for whatever reason, is tapping into that actual previous life and then remembering it as their own when it wasn't actually their own. So that that would be in that specific case. Of course, the the question arises: is well, why and how does that happen? Like, what would what makes that so different? Why would this? Why would a child have this experience of? Well, I was that person.
2: Yeah, it's a very different thing from from being able to like, you know, I've sat in a classroom, somebody asked a question and an, a, an answer came out of my mouth. Before I even realized what the question was, the answer came out of my mouth. I had n- like no conscious control. I'd not studied this thing. It just came out. Mm-hmm. So I can see where that happens because mm-hmm. it's happened to me. Mm-hmm. However, that is totally different than being like, I experienced yeah. going in a being in a plane and crashing. That is that's two very different things and mm-hmm. that's why I was kind of getting to the point of like well if you get into that realm where it's just an a yeah. subconscious thing, well then we're talking about having to reformulate what consciousness is. Mm-hmm. If somebody's consciousness can access it in that way and have that experience, yeah. then yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: And that's kind of why
0: I that's why I, I sometimes find like the the philosophical like skeptic approach annoying yeah. is because it, it is annoying <laughs> yes. but uh, but useful as a check you know now mm-hmm. and then to 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 just kind of
1: stay grounded but well i want to yeah. comment on that because um you know that we're we're all uh making leaps of assumption or you know putting up walls to the possibilities of consciousness or afterlife existence and there seems to be you know, from my perspective, when when I said earlier that you know there there's certain literature that I found very compelling, uh, I you might say that even though I reserve some uh, skepticism as to what some of the so-called proofs are of an afterlife, you know, I, I you can say that i I assign a high probability to the validity of the idea. so so, using that as a point of departure, when you know when I've read some of this uh, some of these readings, some of this channeled material, some of this automatic writing that um, is is so filled from my perspective, with some amount of wisdom and insight into the human condition, into the uh, into a spiritual hierarchy that that could be said to exist in the universe in terms of, Development and in terms of being of of uh, a, a more or less greater uh, level of being, so you know that to me having you know having assigned a certain amount of uh, probability uh, to the reality of an afterlife. I'm, I'm like that is the most uh, useful uh, material to my mind by the same token this discussion has taken on some some interesting directions because uh really you know the the possibilities for consciousness um are you know almost limitless in a sense and and we've been so hit over the head with very narrow uh definitions of of what we're capable of 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 what it's possible to perceive of, you know, cognitive ability that, um, really, you know, (laughs) if, if anything, this material provides a, a basis for more questions. Uh, so, so that's, that's also what I, I find kind of stimulating about looking at this material because, you know, Leslie Keen's book and and this docu series that that's been based on it really really just scratches the surface of of what's out there, and um, it for me because uh, I'd not looked into
2: like physical mediums as an example, so I was able to learn some cool things about physical mediums that I had no idea about, mm-hmm. and I think one of the good hallmarks of uh, something that's worth engaging in is when you walk away with more questions than answers, in a good way, in a curious way, not in a like, uh, you know, movie with all the plot holes in the world, um, like some recent things that shall not be named. Um, the uh, yeah, it it sparks a curiosity in you that that gives you more uh, more questions than answers, in a way that leaves you more informed even though you have more questions you're still more informed than you were before and i think that's uh that's a good hallmark or a good benchmark for for when something's worth uh, engaging in and yeah so just wanted to throw that out Mm
0: -hmm. well you could say that uh, this book and a show like like the one we watched is more of a what might be the evidence that suggests that life after death is real and then the stuff that you're talking about is what might be the in-depth details about the nature of that afterlife right right so those would be kind of i think two different two different questions or could be so once you get into that question then it's well then it's entering the jungle where where it's it's a matter of s- sorting through the 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 numerous different portrayals of what the afterlife looks like and separating the wheat from the chaff will you know that, and i think that's why a person like kane or Browdy or the or the, doc, the filmmakers would avoid that is because that's a huge project and what's what's your standard aside from um well, i like this one right mm-hmm. it's like that that would that would be in itself a huge project to to engage in i completely right? agree yeah. i mean I,
1: i've i've read enough of these books now where i've um yearned to see some representation of it that didn't uh, look or sound like, you know, Michael Landon's nineteen ninety series, Highway to Heaven, or, I mean, just something that that, that gave a uh, an eloquence, a beauty uh, to all of the 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 wisdom that seems to be uh, conveyed through mm-hmm. these um, through these books uh, that are that are meant. Uh, not to not to give us uh, solace in in the idea that that there's you know more to this uh, mortal coil, but that there is much more to uh, to life and to the cosmos and and uh, human existence and and existence in the universe uh, that we just we get. We just don't have the the, the background for, mm-hmm. um, you know. We, we have these very shorthand explanations of it. Um, I think through a lot of the world's uh, religions, and uh, it it seems to me to be very uh, incomplete and um, and wanting. And so, uh, because if if you're looking for for directions to grow into what does that mean what does that even mean for oneself uh what what is it about an understanding of how things may in fact exist at other levels that inform our existence uh so that's that's why i i come back to these uh these books uh Life Beyond the Veil being one that I've mentioned repeatedly on this show, that um that has scenes in it that are just to my mind, uh a little astonishing. Uh that at least speak to my own sensibility. Um, if you know, if, if such a thing can be uh described as such. So but by the same token, you know, I I've I've watched this This series. I didn't get to read the book yet, but thought you know, as a as a kind of a primer, even though a lot of this has already been out there and and distributed in articles and books and and discussed on you know various talk shows and here and there uh, as human interest stories. um, It does manage to put together uh, some some fairly uh, you know best best evidence best case scenarios for the probability of of afterlife existence for a lot of people and i found myself wanting to say to you know friends who friends and family who are uh, maybe of the more skeptical bent hey you know watch this don't believe in it necessarily but just watch it listen to the listen to the people's experiences of of seeing departed ones Uh, visit them, you know, close to their deathbeds. Listen to the people who were trapped under the river surface in their kayaks for an hour and and saw themselves at a distance and and were clinically dead for uh, a little while, you know.
2: And then we're able to describe what uh, some of the people that came to help them were wearing or what people were being operated on, what they said during the operation while this person was uh, either dead on the table or completely zonked out. Because of the
1: uh, anesthesia, or- yeah. You don't have to decide. You don't have to make a decision one way or the other. But um, it, it is material that uh, you know that if you're if you're a thinking person, I'll say that if you're a thing, if you have any questions about anything in your life, uh, in about life itself, this will this will add to them. And what? and to engage in it. Uh, engage with it in
2: a way that's not totally just outrightly dismissive Mm -hmm. because you can look at it and you can just be like oh they're crazy and don't engage with it any more than that Mm -hmm. which is disrespectful (laughs) um but you know it just i just it's intellectually lazy Mm -hmm. it's just lazy to me Mm -hmm. for for somebody to like watch it and just be like oh they're crazy like yeah you can use that as a as a possible reason for, you know, what happened and what they were saying. yeah, that's totally possible. Or there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to account for it. If there's something here that happened, we need to know what it is and how it fits into the greater narrative of things. So that way we can, you know, if we're wrong about something, we need to know. Because if we're, you know, basing all of our lives on a specific assumption and that assumption Mm -hmm. is wrong... We will
1: have a price to pay. Mm-hmm. Well, Harrison, you mentioned a little earlier how you know it, it was the the mothers of the children who were experiencing these you know reincarnational knowledge dumps. You know, like James with the the fighter planes during World War II, or the the Indian boy who who knew things that only the departed chief of the of the tribe knew very specifically and and i think there were a couple of other cases where it was the mom who had stepped in to the situation out of a uh, empathetic desire to help their mm-hmm. their child with the nightmares with the with this other body of knowledge that they had no right to to know so well and to continue to incorporate into their own you know lives and and so i think there that there is something to be said for the, because um, uh, Stephen Broad comes at this from a, a very scientific, analytical uh, perspective, as you mentioned before. But there's also, I think, a uh, an emotional uh, component to all of this, which is one of the threads throughout the, the series and throughout our own lives, which is that uh, intelligence... Um, or thinking ability is also informed by uh, an empathic emotional um, desire to be of assistance, to be of uh, a giving nature. And uh, there's certainly a danger to that too, um, as as is found in the new age community that uh, that might take emotionalism further than, uh, is helpful. It could be detrimental if, if there isn't a certain level of critical thinking and, and rational analysis. But-, but at the heart of it, the reason why people do things
2: is because of there's some kind of relationship that's drawing them towards it. Even if it's a, a totally uh, egoistic thing uh, or a totally narcissistic thing, it's a relationship with oneself. Uh, i think in that respect that's pulling them towards uh, doing or searching or looking for or or doing something
0: what are you guys talking about like uh like what's what's a practical example like what the like, hell are you guys talking <laughs> no, about no, like, what, what is, i don't understand well, the those thing you referenced? Said. like what's an example of the the dynamic that you're talking about
1: well so the getting back to the mothers mm-hmm. of the stories uh there there wouldn't have been greater knowledge or and the father in the case of James. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't have been a, a greater knowledge base for the okay. probable existence of after an afterlife reality mm-hmm. had not had not they cared enough about their children yeah. to investigate it instead of instead of dismissing them. I mean there was a real desire to 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 help this kid come to terms with all of this stuff that is really quite abnormal to, to be dealing with at mm-hmm. such a young age. So, um, it it's it's that impetus, uh, that that empathy, that care for the child. Like the like the dad who took the boy to the very island that you know that the past life uh, man's you know where he lost his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a this was an act of pure love and 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 kind of therapy to go through all that trouble. I, it was very touching actually yeah. um, so there is a you know there is a another type of intelligence an, an emotional yeah. intelligence if you will yeah that informs some of this knowledge I think
0: yeah, I wanted to bring up something very similar and that is to kind of take a couple points out of what you both said for the last few minutes. I think that the starting point the most healthy and rational starting point is to just first of all accept that these kinds of things happen whatever the explanation is for them. For example, I until reading the book, I hadn't been aware of how common it is for people who are dying to have awakening uh, uh, visions of their their dead loved ones right I hadn't known how common it is, but it's actually, pretty well known among, like, hospice workers that this kind of stuff happens. But a lot of people just, because they reject the idea that it could be true, that it could possibly, that it could be true, they re- they are closed off increasingly to the idea that it even happens. And so it's just kind of this, it's just something that happens that the the people that deal with the dead and the dying, you know, are aware of. But, but you know, I hadn't been exposed to that. Like, it, it wasn't part of my my worldview that that is a thing that happens regularly or that could happen
2: regularly. What's the percentage on the number of people that experience it? Do you remember? No, I can't remember. Was it a a high, like 70% of, or more like a 20? I have
1: no idea. No recollection. I I thought it was around 50 based on one of the things that I had read, but it is, it is surprisingly high Mm -hmm. and it didn't surprise me because, um, I I had heard anecdotally stories like that, you know, where a Mm -hmm. a friend's mother uh, on her deathbed pretty much had that very experience of seeing people coming to her and and her saying, don't you see, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, so...
0: Well, so if you're aware that that kind of thing happens, it's not going to be a surprise to you, and regardless of what you may think about the the reality of if they're seeing them or not, it's important to know that it happens to be able to deal with it. The same thing with the children who remember past lives. If you live in a world where that thing never happens, then like a lot of these families, it comes out of nowhere. You're surprised by it. You don't know what to do. Your child is in terror every night because of these memories or nightmares, and you, you have no options. You don't know what to do. If everyone were aware of, even if they, even if, even in a, even if in a culture, even if a culture totally rejected the possibility of an afterlife, if they were aware of these things happening and had responses to them, they'd be able to deal with them. It's like, oh, well, he doesn't, he doesn't really remember a past life. It's just a coincidence that everything that he says matches up with his actual past life. But here's what we do when a child, you know, delusionally thinks that he was this person that actually existed and knows all these details of his life. So, so let's do this thing. And I think that the reason that we reject that is because that's an absurd way of looking at it because you have to reject the fact that he actually is remembering things that actually happened that he could have no access to. But regardless, if, if more parents were just aware of, it's a possibility that my child will have memories of a past life, whether real or not, well, here's what, here's what we can do to, to, you know. Help him get
2: through it.
1: And that's something I thought the show did well because as in the case with the Indian boy uh, who was basically, you
2: know... His own grandfather, great grandfather. Or
1: or like the the head tribesman. He was already born into a culture that was very accepting of of this type of thing where, you know, worship, of respectful of it and... Expecting it. Or expecting it and and, and, uh, respectful of ancestors. So it was built in. So it was... You know, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a thing where, uh, you know, in, in most Western cultures, it's, you know, it's the stuff of sci-fi, right? It's a curiosity uh, and an entertainment and a novelty and not uh, part of our, um, our worldview. Uh, so, yeah, so acknowledging uh, what may very well be or, or should be part of our worldview um, you know, through these facts and not being dismissive of them outright, I think is uh it's just a a good idea and on that point, it was very interesting to read some of the reviews of of this program, mm. right, because you had a lot of reviewers saying things like, Well, there was no you know equal attention given you know by uh scientific materialist you know analysis and when I read that, I thought, but you know what? everything is so biased in that direction anyway, for the most part that here finally, you know is a is a, a reasonable, not perfect, because uh, there were things that that stretched my you know beliefs and and or possibilities or or at least caused me to question, you know w- with some skepticism what it was we were actually seeing. As in the case of the mediums, but even then
0: the mediums were entertaining, if nothing else.
1: <laughs> yes, true. But but certainly there is a kind of a, a vociferousness, um, a uh, an anger, a dismissiveness to any kind of presentation of of this kind. That is, uh, it's kind of like a, a knee jerk reaction, and it seems to me that there is. You know, some segment of the population that is either so indoctrinated with materialist science, or somehow constitutionally incapable of taking on this information as part of their um, as part of their thinking and being. It's it's like there is this you know this uh, you know imagine if you would a, a wall inside of their minds that um, has been so built up and strengthened and and fortified that they are prepared to come up with any rationalization to dismiss out of hand any of this information. So that's unfortunate. By the same token, I don't think most of the people who are going to be tuning into this program are of that bent because they- Probably got a few they're They're probably already predisposed to some level of open mindedness and um you know at best they have more questions that they can pursue for themselves about the the reality of this whole subject
0: mm-hmm. well the the last observation I wanted to make about watching the show is that and this kind of relates back to what we were just saying about. Being aware of these kinds of things, just even for their therapeutic value, is that one of the themes, of course, because this—it's a show. It's six episodes about death, death, which is a part of everyone's life, whether they want it or not. And you see the amount of grieving that people go through when a loved one dies, especially um, if it's a child or you know a young person or someone that just that dies um, unexpectedly, and just out of nowhere. They're here one moment and then totally totally unexpectedly, you, you were expecting to have years and years with them and then they're gone. So the the family members and the loved ones um, go through this immense grieving process naturally. Now, one of the things that stand, stands out and that stood out through this, throughout the, the series, is the the therapeutic effect of, again, these types of things that actually bring some sense of closure and some some sense of acceptance and um, ease the grieving process so even from again from a strictly utilitarian perspective even if you don't want to change your worldview it would make sense if we're if we're looking at what actually works i mean again i think that there's uh, that there's a high degree of probability that this is actually true, that there is life after death that a lot of these things are veridical experiences. They actually do happen in some sense in the way that they appear to happen. Mm-hmm. But for, for for a culture or for a person who is who rejects that possibility, then I'd say the next best, the next best thing would be to take the you know platonic noble lie, into account where you say oh well i don't believe that the afterlife actually exists but look at how it how how look at the effect that it has on actually helping people to function again i don't I don't agree with that as a the approach to take but it's i think it would be better than nothing cuz because there was the the one couple that set up um, the like a, a group for for people who what what was it? Was it actually for they, they put in, they put people in touch with certain mediums. Oh, yeah, that was certain mediums and it was it was basically like a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different perspectives and uh, approaches. and the the one that just sticks to mind is the the, the man, he was a, a medium who draws uh, portraits, so faces of the the, the the spirits of the dead people that you know that he's seeing and then relays a message um but things like that even in the mediumship which i'm most skeptical about but which i i still think that there are actual good mediums um that it it seems to me that it would make sense to have a to take a scientific approach to find out what actually works the best to help people get through mm-hmm. grief mm-hmm. because in a lot of these cases you see the success stories like the the couple that set up this this retreat center um and program i think that i think they had lost uh, a daughter i can't remember for sure mm-hmm. but and you can see that even though they still they still feel and not just them but a lot of the people in this series even though they still grieve and they still miss their their daughter or their their son or their husband or wife or whatever that There, there's more of an acceptance to it, and they can live their lives because you also see some people who are in a terrible place who can't move on with their lives, and um, so yeah, just uh, I haven't totally formulated that thought, but similar with the kids who remember past lives, it's like you, isn't it better to figure out something that actually works to, to help them as opposed to just like blocking it off and not acknowledging that it's actually happening, or to to give some interpretation on it and impose that interpretation on the kid that potentially only makes things worse. Um, there does seem to be methods that actually yeah, uh, and have a good outcome.
1: And there's another reason why I think all of this is important, and that is that it's anti-nihilism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since so much of what's worst about developments in the world today um, are due to a nihilistic perspective in regards to postmodernism and ideology and technology and uh, political movements so much of it is informed by this anti-non-physical reality perspective uh, it that you know that this is having at least a and openness to all this I think um, subverts and 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 undercuts uh, a person's you know all the kind of anti uh, anti-spiritual for lack of a better word um, uh, movements that are that are being um, kind of foisted upon people so, uh, and mass so and you know, there's a raging war right now with uh, intelligent design, which is another subject we'll be uh, revisiting. Um, that kind of lays out the the, the warfare of of these two um, these two sides in a way uh, that that is very important to to think about and to. Consider and to uh, realize in in all of the many different directions and implications that that uh, an understanding of of these issues have. So that's all I wanted to to add to that subject. Well, I'll just throw in the um, just
2: to I guess expand on the points you were kind of making a little bit the. Uh, Oh, what would you call it? Um. Well, okay. So the the two perspectives within the West of, uh, or you know, just two perspectives, I guess you could say, the totally materialistic uh, versus the uh, immaterial, non-materialistic uh, perspectives. I mean, if all we are is just bags of meat, and the only thing we have is the time we have here and and now, then one could make the case that, you know, why should I not uh, go for what gives me the most pleasure in the here and now moment? Because I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, and then if I did die tomorrow, then there's nothing left of me. So uh, I'm totally justified in, in acting or behaving in whatever way I see fit at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if we have this different perspective where, uh, you know, once you're, you're dead, you're not gone, and if somebody that you know and love dies and you can still have conversations with them and they can still communicate with you in some way, well then it's not all about you and it's not all about the here and now. So it, it, changes your value system and expands your, um, the possibilities for, for what is, uh, good and and right and, and how best to behave. Now, uh, I would still say that even if there was only the here and now moment and there was uh no hereafter, I still think that uh, it's better to, to live a life of goodness. Um, you know, even if there's no heavenly reward, you know, mm-hmm. uh, afterwards, I still say that it's, it's morally better to live your life in a, in a way of um of service to others more than the the service of yourself and your own ego um but if we have we can take that perspective and have you know a a, a life after death and it becomes this even more um a, it, it provides a greater impetus to behaving in a way that is uh, considerate of other people. And you're less likely to get uh, controlled in certain ways. Because again, like with all of the, uh, the COVID uh, hysteria, there's a lot of fear of death. But if we have a perspective where death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you, because that's kind of the the shift of the perspective, the, the perspective has shifted from, you know, uh, what matters most is, is how you live your life as opposed to like, are you still alive? Mm-hmm. And so it's shifted in the wrong direction. So if we can shift it back, um, uh, then we will no then we'll no longer, uh, be cowed into the, the fear state that allows for the manipulative control. Because again, if death is the worst thing that can happen then you want to stave off death in every by every means possible if death is not the worst thing in the world and it's not the worst thing that can happen to you then you know we need to be addressing those things because death isn't the most important so that's why I think this stuff is so important to uh to look into to research to share to learn more about because you know it, it can have a real benefit for uh for everybody who engages with it so
1: hmm. well i like what you said about um was it enlarging your value system or uh something like that something like that uh, cuz it is about a value system in a way and you know you, if you take your values with you wherever you go uh you your environment is part of you in a in a very real sense imagine you know n- not as necessarily a um a carrot in the stick situation but you know w- wouldn't you like to be in a place that that fits a, a positive disposition for most people where where you know a hellish you know mindset it isn't you know if you have a hellish mindset all the time you it, it makes sense that you might you might be uh, you might find yourself in a in a a similar environment one day um, because that's where you fit. In any case, this isn't the end of this discussion, um, but it is the end of the show. And uh, we thank you guys for listening. Take good care, and uh, we'll be coming at you soon with another show. We'll